My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have a ton of information there, different assessments, release and mobilization techniques, stretches, and exercises that will all help you avoid injury, enhance your performance, and optimize your rehab. Now, in this episode, we're diving into the science of golf fitness, and I have my good buddy, Nathan Jackson, joining us. So Nate's a strength and conditioning coach, registered nutritionist, and level two TPI certified with over two decades of experience helping golfers reduce pain and hit bombs. He's been a writer and featured expert for numerous television and radio shows, as well as print publications. So Nate and I are going to break down the science of designing a golf fitness program. Now, when I work with an athlete, there's an algorithm that I follow. First, I evaluate the demands of the sport. Then I assess the abilities of that particular athlete. And then we train to make up the difference, right? So then what are the demands of golf? Well, I've identified six main demands. One, golf's an asymmetrical sport that has a lot of repetitive movement patterns in the transverse plane which means that there's a lot of rotating. Two, injuries could result from those repetitive movement patterns. Three, cardiorespiratory conditioning might not seem as important in golf as it is in other sports, but the average golfer walks between four and five miles per round. And so endurance could become a factor in a golfer's performance especially on holes 16, 17, and 18. Four, golf requires a unique combination of stabilization, strength, and power throughout the entire body, and specifically in the hips, shoulders, and spine. Five, muscle imbalances, joint dysfunctions, and neuromuscular deficits could cause faulty movement patterns and limit the golfer's ability to swing effectively. And six, flexibility has been shown to be the most important variable regarding performance and injury through clinical trials. So those are the six main demands of golf as identified by me. I then match the demands of the sport with the goals, needs, and abilities of the particular athlete. And if I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a golfer, we do an assessment and we're always reassessing. Even during the session, we assess usually before and definitely after. And if there's something we're really working on, we're assessing during as well to see if what we're doing is having the impact that we want. Right now in this episode, Nate and I are going to break down and describe the assessments that we use with golfers and why we use them. But after I finish the assessment, 
I look at the results and I compare the results to the demands of the sport. And then, like I said earlier, we train to make up the difference. And the best way to achieve consistent, superior results is to follow a periodized training program. And Nate and I are going to break down what periodization is and how to do it in this episode. But our program will need corrective exercises to improve the muscle imbalances, joint dysfunctions, neuromuscular deficits, and movement impairments that were identified by the assessment. We'll need stabilization and core training to improve your balance and postural control, which will help you stay in posture during your swing, hit the ball pure, and help you become more consistent. We'll also need strength and endurance training. Being stronger obviously helps you hit the ball farther and more accurately, but it also gives you more options when it comes to shot selection and more control over course management during stroke play. Having more endurance or stamina will help you maintain focus on the later holes and improve your putting accuracy. Now for the elite golfers, we'll need power training to increase velocity and the rate of force production, right? So with power training, you can expect massive increases in club head speed, ball speed, and carry distance and much better distance control as well. So we take all of that and we make a program. And the program is this methodical approach that systematically improves physical, physiological, psychological, and performance adaptations. And so the program serves as a path. And that path leads the golfer to more wins, higher rankings, and more money. Now, the Train Fully Golf Fitness Program is a periodized program that safely and effectively provides you with that path to success. So you can pick that up at trainfully.com. Now, a lot of you have been asking me what you should do after you finish the Train Fully Program. Well, we have new periodized programs coming out very soon. We have performance recovery programs to help you optimize rehab and reduce the risk of injury. And we have performance enhancement programs that focus more on stabilization, strength, and power adaptations to give you massive gains in club head speed, ball speed, and carry distance. And if you're a professional golfer, we have very elite tour level programs for you as well. So I'll be giving out more information on that here in the next couple of weeks. So let's get on with the episode. Nate's here and he and I are going to pull back the curtain and show you the science of golf fitness. All right. So joining us today, my good buddy, Nathan Jackson. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tommy. Pleasure to be here. So today, Nate and I are going to break down the science of creating a golf fitness program. You can look up the stuff that we talk about online, do a little bit of research yourself. You can reach out to us afterwards if you have questions. And if you want Nate to make a program for you, we'll have his contact information uh, at the end as well. So ideally, this whole process would begin with an assessment because the assessment helps us identify where your weak links are, where your restrictions and limitations are. And if we know where they are, then we can fix them. There are a lot of different assessments that we can use. There are posture assessments, movement assessments, 
flexibility and range of motion assessments, strength assessments, and cardiovascular assessments. But we don't necessarily use all of the assessments. We only use an assessment if we're going to do something with that information, right? We don't assess just for the sake of assessing. We assess to gather information and then use that information to create an intervention or a program. So Nate, why don't you go first? Which assessments do you use and why? Being in the golf industry and in the Titleist Performance Institute kind of family, um, I've used or been using their assessment. Obviously it's dedicated or geared towards golfers. Um, I like their assessment a lot. It's kind of FMS uh, influence there. I like their assessment a lot, especially for like creating buy-in with my clients. So if I'm on a range or something like that, and I'm going to go, you know, either cut it in half or do the entire thing. You put a golf club in a, in a golfer's hands and eyes light up and you kind of already get that immediate buy-in. So I like that component of the TPI assessment. Now, <laughs> since um, I reached out to you last year, cause I had my own issues and you kind of took me through your assessment and, and you know, I knew you knew that I'm a golfer. And so I'm not sure how different that is from your general population, but there's a couple things in there that I've actually stolen from you or made me think about how I use the TPI assessment and go from there. But you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like there's a million different assessments and I'm not going to take my clients through, I uh, can't think of anything on top of my head here, but anything that's like not related to the golf swing, or if it's a general pop client, then I'm not going to give them the TPI assessment because they don't care, you know, if they have 60 degrees of hip internal rotation, I care, but they don't care. <laughs> So certain things there that I'm looking for uh, with golfers. So for me, like squat, you know, deep squats or not even a deep squat test, just a squat test. I think that's something that you kind of opened my eyes to. I don't use the deep squat from TPI anymore. Um, I don't need to, like, once you know what you're looking for, if a person can't get past 90, I know they don't have hip internal rotation. So why am I trying to force feed it to them? I'm looking at their hips, if they're shifting, knees collapsing in, if their feet are like, you know, flaring out type thing. Uh, one of the things that, again, you kind of opened my eyes to is that you were like, and I knew this in terms of what was going on. I just didn't know why. And you looked at my feet and they were like, well, Nate, you're gripping on for like dear life in order you know, to stay upright and manage gravity as opposed to falling over in my squat. So looking at a squat, a toe touch, I think uh, a lot of things there. Um, and really getting to, like, to know your assessment and what you're looking for. Because you know, for the TPI app, if you touch the ground for the toe touch, you're cleared. It's how you get there that I'm looking at now. And again, it's something that you kind of opened my eyes to a year ago. And so great, if you can touch the ground, awesome. But the strategy you use to get there is interesting to me because that can dictate some other things that are going on in your body. So like for me, for instance, uh, I have pretty decent length of, of hamstrings. So I can pretty much just like hang out there, but I kind of fold at my hips and I hip hinge my, my uh, toe touch. What I'm looking for now is, does the person have a nice rounded back? And, you know, when they get down there and they're reaching for the ground and whether they touch the ground or not, are their arms internally rotating? It tells me a lot of stuff on shoulder health, even though it's a toe touch, you know, drill type thing, right? And so for me, like I said, I'm, I'm compressed kind of above my pelvis. So I got some flatness going on there. I have a nice little arc in my thoracic spine. And then kind of like in between the shoulder blades, even like lower uh, cervical, I'm kind of compressed there. I'm flat there as well. Kind of tough to describe on, um, on a podcast, but looking at that, even though it's a toe touch, I can tell a lot about shoulder flexion, even rotation, thoracic rotation, hip rotation. Um, so those two are my main ones. And I'm going through like shoulder flexion, 
um, you know, short IR, ER, hip IR, ER. Um, I look at ISAs, so your infrasternal angle a little bit. Doesn't um, I was pretty big on it last year at this time, but I've kind of evolved. Like it's just a measure, just another tool. I look at feet, which again, something that you kind of started, um, you know, opened my eyes to. And I'm looking at, you know, in terms of are they living in supination, which maybe is like an early stance gait or a late stance gait? Are they pronated um, or pronating? And then therefore, are they mid stance? For me, I have kind of a, a late stance left foot. And so it looks a little bit different than my right foot. And that's going to dictate some of the things and positions I put you in for exercises and stuff like that. Um, what else do I use? That's pretty much the just oh, neck rotation. I like that a lot. And obviously for golfers, it's one of the main areas for uh, rotation in the golf swing. So I'll make sure that that's you know, taken care of. Outside of that, um, I like to take a photo of the person from like mid thigh down to their toes. And again, I think you actually kind of brought me onto that. And I'm looking for like, you know, is this, are their femur IRing and ERing? And is that, you know, what the relationship is to their tibia? And, you know, is the tibia ER IRing and based on that? And that's going to kind of dictate your, your foot as well. So, I mean, I like the TPI screen, but it doesn't give me everything. But at the same time, I can actually do less measurements and get more from it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that I respect about you so much is you identify, you're able to identify that these are tools that you can use to gather information. I think a lot of people kind of get stuck and Greg Cook even talks about this. He's the guy that, that created the, the FMS and, and the TPI screen that it's not meant to be a, like a definitive assessment. It's meant to be a screen. That's why it's called a screen. And then you take that information and then you have to assess further. And that's exactly what, what you do. I always start with the overhead squat assessment. And that's something that, that you, you talked about. It's a dynamic or transitional posture assessment that combines end range shoulder flexion with a squat. So I want you to keep your hands up, raised up above your head as high as you can while you squat. And it's designed to highlight altered movement patterns. So deviations in your movement from what we consider ideal. And those deviations are signs of dysfunction. So something's not moving in your body the way that it should. And the common signs of dysfunction are, just as Nate mentioned, do your feet flatten? Do your feet move out? Do they turn out? Do your knees move in? Do your knees move out? Does your low back arch? Do you have an excessive forward lean? Do your arms fall? Or maybe you have an asymmetrical weight shift. Each one of these signs is associated with a joint action or joint actions. For example, low back arches would be excessive hip flexion and excessive lumbar spine extension. And then from those joint actions, I can infer the length and activity of the muscles around that joint, right? Like I can't see if you have tight hip flexors, but I can see that you have excessive hip flexion. And from that, infer that you have tight hip flexors. And if your hip flexors are overactive, then that must mean that the opposing muscles must be underactive. And things get a little bit more complex when we start thinking about synergistic dominance, but we can go through and we can do that with all of the muscles around all of the joints. Now, some of these signs will cluster together, like feet flatten, feet turn out, and knees move in, tend to cluster together. And we can categorize these clusters into three main postural dysfunctions. And this is where that predictive modeling comes into play. So we have lower extremity dysfunction, 
we have lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction, we have upper body dysfunction. And so when I watch somebody do the overhead squat assessment, I can tell if they have one or more of these postural dysfunctions. And each one of these postural dysfunctions has common muscle imbalances, uh, joint dysfunctions, and neuromuscular deficits associated with it. So for example, if while performing the overhead squat, I see a sign cluster of knees move in, low back arches, excessive forward lean and arms fall, I know that likely represents lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction. And then if I use the predictive models, that means probably that the person has short and overactive hip flexors, they'll have long and underactive glutes. And if their glutes are underactive, they probably have synergistic dominance around their hip. And in which case they'll have long and overactive hamstrings, they'll have dysfunction probably in their hips, their SI joints and their lumbar spine. And that's just, you know, some examples there, we can actually expand out on that and list the length and tension of all the muscles through the lumbopelvic hip complex. But that gives us a lot of information about the person's movement about what's going on in their body, and probably gives us some pretty good ideas why they're feeling certain aches and pains that they have because we know that lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction is associated with low back pain hamstring pulls and knee injuries right and so we get a really good idea of what's happening with the body with the person's body just by watching them do the overhead squat assessment and then by the end of that i'll have a list of all the muscles that are probably short and overactive long and underactive, long and overactive, short and underactive, as well as all the joints that have dysfunction. I'll follow that assessment up with some special tests, with some goniometry, range of motion tests, um, muscle length tests, and manual muscle testing to kind of hone in further. But at the end, when I'm done the assessment, I will have a really strong list of muscles, like I said, that are short and overactive, all of that dysfunction, all the muscle imbalances, all the joint dysfunctions, all the neuromuscular deficits. And then from there, we can create a, an intervention. I can create a corrective routine within a periodized program, or I can create a periodized program from that corrective routine and all of its progressions. So why don't we get into that now? How do we start planning? Like after you finish your assessment, how do you begin to plan the program for the individual? I mean, for me, it's all about what the person needs right now. So, I mean, if I can get after some low hanging fruit, uh, that'd be great, especially if they're golfers and they're coming to me in season. I mean, it'd be great if they came to me in November and I had a full six months to work with them and, you know, kind of, you know, get after some of these movement issues that they may have, you know, build up some strength some power, some speed. But if you're coming to me in season, because a lot of times people get, you know, grab their golf clubs in March, start swinging and then, you know, realize that, oh, my back hurts. Or they, you know, it's mid-June and they play two rounds in back-to-back -back days and that's when their back hurts. So then they're you know, kind of reaching out to somebody like yourself or me to kind of um, you know, show them the way. So if somebody's coming to me in season, it's really just getting after the low-hanging fruit. And a lot of times, if it's my older clientele, it's going to be the mobility stability um, kind of realm there. At least that'll be the, the basis of that or the gist of that program. And I'm always trying to, like, try to get in strength training as soon as I possibly can. So for me, I'm not trying to do like a rehabilitation program. That's not my, that's not what they're coming to me for. Um, you know, I'm always trying to get them to train more, but there might be some time where obviously we have to do a couple of weeks, uh, depending on the person, a couple of weeks of, you know, really getting after the joint, you know, proximal, st um, proximal stability for distal mobility. 
and really try to get after how they move so I can give them some strength training now on top of, you know, some good movement patterns as opposed to things that are obviously, uh, what's, the, what's the phrase? I think it's great, Cook. Um, you don't want to add fitness to dysfunction. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's where I'm at with in-season, um, especially for the, you know, people that are like further from the equator and actually have an off-season. I'd like to get them in November. Unfortunately, when golf season ends, for some reason, everybody just takes like November to December off or November to like March off. And that's, 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 that's prime time for me, right? To get you into a better position, get you moving better, getting be able to express power better, um, which obviously leads to more power and speed. So just stuff like that. I'd rather get after the low hanging fruit. But if you're coming to me in November and we actually have time, that's, that's great. I love that because now we can go into true phases and take our time. Um, you know, it's not kind of just a, a rush shot type thing. How about you? Yeah. And that's, I like what you mentioned, the phases. Uh, when Nate and I design a program, what we're doing is we're creating a path for the athlete to achieve their performance goals without becoming injured. And the best way to do that is through periodization. And so periodization is a way for us to plan or, or structure training over time. And what we do is we divide the training up into different phases. The purpose of each phase is to cause a specific physiological adaptation. Now, how we organize those phases is going to depend on the, what the assessment tells us, what the golfer's goals are, what their abilities are, as well as what the reassessments tell us, because we're always reassessing, right? Now, there's been a ton of information or a ton of research that has looked at how to best periodize a program. Um, periodization is a concept, right? There are no hard rules. That being said, the literature does give us some really good templates, some really good models that we can follow. I typically will follow the OPT model designed by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. So with this model, we have six phases and each phase is kind of like a step on a staircase, right? So the floor, first of all, the floor is corrective training. Everybody has to do corrective training. The first step on the staircase will be stabilization training. So this is almost like a progression from the corrective training. We're starting to work a little bit more on stabilization strength. There's a lot of core work, a lot of balance work, and really we're focused on improving neuromuscular coordination. And then the second step is strength endurance. So we're starting now with the strength training. Now with the strength endurance training, I will typically use supersets. So we have say a strength movement supersetted with one of those stabilization exercises from the previous phase. The third step is hypertrophy training. So this is where we start to try to make the muscle a bit bigger. We're looking at increasing the cross-sectional area of the muscle. Fourth step would be maximum strength training where as the name suggests, we're trying to see how strong we can get you. Fifth step will be power training and the sixth step will be maximum power training. And we kind of just move up and down the staircase, stopping at different steps and going to different heights, depending on what the golfers needs, abilities and goals are. But the key there is we don't go to every step with every golfer. Not every step is going to be appropriate for every golfer. For example, I will typically only use power training with the more advanced athletes. So why don't we talk a little bit more about this now, because this is actually an interesting conversation. Nate, how do you decide 
if power training, plyometrics, or overspeed training is appropriate for a golfer. There's a lot to unpack there. Let me just back up for a second and just, I wanna make a note here that you can't get all those steps, and my model is a little bit different than yours, but in the end, very similar. You can't get all these steps in one single 12 week program that you purchase online, whether it's your program, my program, whoever, and be very good at it. I mean, yeah, you can get kind of a taste of it, but at the same time, you know, I have a lot of clients or had a lot of clients who kind of came to me and, you know, they have a lot of issues. And after 12 weeks, like that's kind of my bare minimum. I'll work with somebody to make sure we get some adaptation going on and so they can see results. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not hitting the ball like Bryson after 12 weeks. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> you know, we have a lot more, a lot more of those steps to kind of take care of there. I just wanted to make note of that because a lot of people come in and whether they, they know, like say Bryson, for example, his route type thing. I mean, Bryson's been doing this for like at least a good like year and a half, if not longer, obviously, but year and a half of a real big transformation, not 12 weeks, you know, like he didn't go from the bottom of that, that pyramid to the top in, in, in that time. So, yeah, I mean, for the most part, my model is very, very similar. Um, and in terms of like how to like figure out if a person is ready for any kind of, um, you know, plyometric or power training, I actually include decel work in my first strength phase. And I pretty much do that with everybody uh, as long as they're, they're moving well. And so decel work, so things like, um, like a drop squat type thing where you're just kind of dropping into a squat really fast and you got to kind of you know tense up and, and activate and really kind of stop yourself on a dime type thing. And I'll do that very basic, just you know bilateral movement. If they can go unilateral, great. If I can start adding in some rotation stuff, awesome. Maybe a fake med ball throw against the wall or a fake med ball slam type thing. Um, I like to use a lot of that just to kind of incorporate and get some of my older clientele, older population into some power training and then go from there. But outside of that, I mean, as long as you kind of go through those steps that you mentioned, um, you know, you're kind of checking off the box. I don't use a staircase analogy. I use kind of like the university 101 you, know, you have to pass this course in order to get to 102 and 102 okay great you, you got strength training you can't have power without strength you graduated strength let's go on to power now and speed and overspeed but um in terms of overspeed though that's kind of like that's the kicker right there that's the conversation i think we want to have it's like especially with phil winning the pga championship a couple of weeks back i'm sure super speed and all the other uh, overspeed training devices on the market they probably had a spike in sales because he carries the super speed sticks in his uh, in his bag but you know unpackaging that it's not for everybody right out of the box and you know just like vibram five fingers or kettlebells or crossfit or um you know any of these different tools of of our industry you have to like kind of earn the right to to play with these things and so with overspeed training if you don't have kind of those steps that you've mentioned and laid out here mobility stability muscle endurance strength power you're really not going to be able to swing a swing that club at any kind of intent in order to increase your speed um and you're probably you know you're probably if you don't move very well you're just cranking on your lower back with rotation your lower back doesn't have much rotation to give anyway and so you're just you know basically you're in, uh, increasing your risk of injury now you might gain three to five miles per hour because you're now swinging a club with intent with no white ball there because as soon as the ball comes you know you and i both know things change um, but you know you're swinging with intent with whether you're using a club a speed stick or your driver or you know upside down driver type thing and if you don't, if you say, if you don't move well, you're just cranking on that low back. And, it, you know, I don't want to say it's predictive of pain, but I mean, <laughs> if you're older and you don't move well, you're probably going to end up seeing somebody. 
like I said, I'm always assessing. I assess before every session. I assess during the session to make sure that what we're doing is having an effect on what we, what we want to achieve. But if the person, if the golfer doesn't have full hip mobility, doesn't have full thoracic spine and shoulder mobility, then it's a non-starter. There's, you're not going to do it. It's too dangerous. It's not, there's always a risk and reward yeah. to an exercise, right? And so we might get a reward of a little bit faster club head speed, but the risk is we could miss a month of golf with a, with a bad back. So it's just not worth it. Um, a lot of times people if I interrupt you for a second. A lot of people don't understand that if I get after your mobility and stability and make you move well, your club head speed is going to go up naturally. <laughs> you don't even it, need the speed sticks. And that's the, that's the, the really cool thing with a lot of the corrective and stabilization stuff is, is as we're building up and, and you're right. I like to think of it as you're, you're passing that level to get to the next level. Those like step one is kind of preparing you for step two and step two is preparing you for step yeah. three. But yeah, if, if you don't have the mobility, it's not going to be worth the risk. And by working on your balances, by improving your range of motion, it's amazing how much faster your club head speed becomes because you don't have the restrictions in your joints that are slowing you down quite often and your coordination improves. So with that in mind, Nate, how do you start developing the mobility, the stability and muscular endurance for your golfers to improve that range of motion to improve the coordination and the speed? Interesting you asked me this question. So over the course of my 20-year career, obviously we're always evolving and you know we're learning new things, trying new things, techniques and philosophies. And, and you know, I think you know, we're always evolving. Hopefully we're always evolving and questioning our own techniques. And I think, um, you know, like I said, a year ago I came to see you because I was actually dealing with some knee pain. And I had tried kind of everything, and I'll get back into your question here in a second, but um, you know, I was dealing with some knee pain and kind of went through everything that I had learned to that point, which was heavy into the FRC kind of stuff, which I'm not sure if your listeners know, but it's just, um, I'm trying to think of an easy way to describe it. Joint mobility, uh, we're looking at kind of strength training both sides of the joint and in order to gain range of motion, you know, usable range of motion. So the difference between flexibility and mobility, flexibility is if I take your arm and, um, and raise it over your head, and I'm actually doing it for you, that's kind of flexibility at end range. If you just raise your arm up overhead naturally on your own, no assistance, that's kind of your mobility providing you're not compensating at uh, anywhere else in the body. And so that's kind of the stuff that I was working with. And then you know, I wasn't really getting the results I wanted. And I went to some manual pack, uh, practitioners and you know got some ART and some acupuncture and it just really wasn't working and I needed something different because I was actually kind of dealing with this for about three years. And um, after the first year, kind of was just too stubborn to, to reach out to other trainers. And so obviously, um, you know, we've got, we go back quite a ways. So I trust you and I knew you had a different approach. And so the reason why it's kind of opened a can of worms is we had different approaches, you and I, but we coincide, we cohabitate in this industry. And a lot of people don't, which we can talk about later if you want, but um, to get to your true question here, what do I do is for the most part now, I'm basically, I kind of left the FRC world in a way. It's still a tool in my toolbox. I understand it. I can use it. Um, same way, you know, I came to see you a year ago. You've kind of got me down the corrective exercise path and went down that. I don't know it as well as you, but I have that tool in my toolbox as well. And so there's certain times where I think the, you know, that approach is, is better. There's certain times, even though I haven't really used it in the last year, and don't kill me FRC crowd, but I don't use it as much as I used to. Um, 
In fact, I haven't used it in probably the last eight months, but I haven't used a foam roller in the last eight months either. And that's, you know, that's probably a little bit different than, than your, your philosophy. So what do I do? Good question. I like to get people into positions now. This is kind of where I'm at now. And like I said, this isn't always the way I did it, but as my evolution as a trainer, where I'm coming from is I like to get people into positions to drive airflow into certain parts of the body to kind of realign their pelvis and their thorax to get that, that proximal stability to allow for um, you know, distal mobility. And so like, let's say if somebody comes to me with, um, you know, that's a golfer, can't rotate their thoracic spine very well. Okay, so let's say we do our th seated thoracic um, spine rotation test and they can't, we can't rotate to their right very well. Okay, so what do we do? Well, in the past, I may have gone maybe the corrective route and looked at up and down different joints. Maybe I would have gone the FRC route and put them up against the wall, pushing into the wall, pulling off the wall, that kind of jazz. And those, I've had great success with both philosophies. And so now basically what I'm doing is putting you in positions. So let's just say I'm gonna put you in a quadruped position and I'll elevate let's say your right hand. So let's say we're doing a push-up, and elevate your right hand. So you have a little bit of right rotation with your torso. And so your spinal process goes to the left with your uh, spine. And so if I have you to breathe on the way down, I can actually drive airflow into that right anterior or sorry, um, right posterior wall, as well as the left anterior wall. And we're just basically like the way I'm thinking of things now, it's kind of a PRI DNS approach to things is we're all kind of like pressure regulators. And so if I can get you to breathe properly while actually still training, yeah, a low level push-up, whether it's an incline push-up or something like that, and I can get some adaptation into that rib cage to make it more dynamic as opposed to stuck in either a narrow or a wide, and you know, that's kind of a, um, the PRI term, I guess. But if I can get some airflow and drive that in there to create some movement without having to do kind of a, a corrective exercise routine type thing where you, uh, you know, correct if I'm wrong here, but like inhibit, stretch, activate, integrate, or the FRC approach where I'm like, you know, having three or four minute long stretches, pushing into a wall, pulling off a wall. Again, there's time and place, but that's kind of where I'm at right now with, with what I'm doing because I can get the person training or at least feel like they're training sooner, if that makes sense. Yeah. as opposed to more of a corrective because they're not really coming to me for that. I'm a strength coach. You have more of a that medical background. So obviously your approach is going to be different. And I think people would maybe expect more of that and, and get a benefit from that that way. But for me, like I'm kind of the ex meathead trainer. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't say you're an ex meathead. That's for sure. Um, Minus yeah, the, you know, the, uh, the FRC stuff is, is interesting to me. Um, and I know I've had this conversation with a lot of people is and i'll just use an example right so like say say uh the person is lacking hip internal rotation and so then with the frc they're going to actively or they're going to work on actively internally rotating their hip to improve the strength of the internal rotators from a posture perspective from my background that sets off alarm bells because the whole dysfunction in the hip is typically caused by overactive hip internal rotators. So the last thing I want to do is, is have somebody doing a routine that is targeting or isolating those, those muscles because we could potentially make the pathology in the hip or make the range of motion, make the pain and make the performance even worse. That being said, if the FRC is used in conjunction 
with the corrective exercise and we can get really good benefits, right? Like if we're constantly inhibiting and stretching the internal rotators um, and doing the FRC, then we can get some good benefits. I have a client right now that uh, sees a uh, physical therapist and they work a lot with the FRC. He has his home routine that he does, but me knowing that means that we spend extra time inhibiting and lengthening and making sure that the length tension relationship of those internal rotators is healthy and that we don't end up causing more dysfunction. So they can coexist and, and in a perfect world, they would, but it does require that we have to be aware of the fact that we are targeting those muscles and spend a little bit extra time, you know, taking care of the length and tension of them. The breathing stuff, when you're talking about the diaphragm and all that, that stuff is so important. I don't know about that as deep as you do, but I do know that, you know, the diaphragm is part of the, the intrinsic stabilization subsystem, that whole musculature that stabilizes your, your lumbar spine. Especially for golfers who, you know, suffer from a QL area pain, right? I mean, the QL is actually attached to your diaphragm. So if you're not breathing well, which most people don't to begin with, then it's not going to be dynamic. It's not going to move very well. And so it's obviously going to be tight on one side or the other, or maybe even both. But um, yeah, this is, this last year has been really, uh, and I credit again, I give credit where credit's due. When I came to you, I was kind of not stuck in my ways, but I thought I had a good model and you kind of opened my eyes. And like I said, I'm not maybe in that same model, but you kind of sent me down that path where I'm looking at feet. Now I'm looking at what's going on, but you know, your foot can basically kind of give me an idea of what's happening up the chain or confirm what's happening up the chain in terms of like what's, you know, phase of gate you're in type thing. You were mentioned earlier on with, um, uh, I can't remember the, what's the, is it the lumbo? Basically it's like lower cross. Lumbo pelvic. Yeah. Lower yeah. So, you know, it's, it's called something a little bit different in the PRI DNS realm, but in the end, it's basically the same stuff, right. In terms of what's happening, you know, muscular wise, but if I can get your pelvis to kind of, you know, go from that anterior to posterior tilt, that's going to hopefully release some of that tension of the muscles that are tight, long, blah, blah. And that way we can kind of get after things. So and it's funny because like, you know, you, we, we cohabitate, but you, you say this in social or on social and all of a sudden now there's like, you know, there's wars to be had. <laughs> it's one yeah. way or the other and you can't be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think that that's something that comes with, with experience. You and I have both been doing this for over 20 years and, and I've been stuck in my ways before as well. And maybe I am right now too. I don't know. Right. It's kind of, as you evolve, you're like, oh man, you kind of gain this, this awareness about um, Absolutely. your approach. But I think like over the course of 20 years, we, you know, you and I are both quite inquisitive and we check out other things and, and try different things. And, and as you do that, you, gain a toolbox of a lot of different tools a lot of the guys online are are not like that they kind of have their thing that isn't even their thing right yeah, right somebody <laughs> just tribalism is, really yeah, exactly it's exactly what it is why don't we talk a little bit about that talk sure. about social media experts <laughs> training and nutrition is probably even worse in terms of the tribalism that goes on with you know whether it's keto or paleo caveman vegan whatever but you know in terms of of the training realm like it's funny because even within and everybody does it and even within like the pri dns side of things you have like our low-end breathing drills which you know you can, you can call those probably correctives and yeah. they're low-end breathing drills and a lot of people just kind of like poop on them all the time because yeah you're not getting a person to train but like i said if i can 
some people need that. Like I have people come in who are super compressed. Now, if, they, if they're a power lifter type thing and they're compressed that way, but they need to be compressed for their sport, I'm not going to give them a low end breathing drill. That's not going to do anything. Um, Alex Effer is a, one of my mentors as well. And he has a, a good saying that, you know, um, load got you into this, this issue <laughs> or this compression. Load is going to get you out of it in terms of that power lifter. If I have something like my dad who doesn't move very well, well, load didn't get him into his issues. Like he's just older, hasn't done anything and he's compressed that way. A low end breathing drill is probably gonna be pretty good for him, at least for the first couple of weeks to get him more realigned, get that pelvis and, and thorax stacked that we're looking for and then get him to train. And that's kind of where I've kind of made my own, like I said, um, progress or evolution in my training is that now I can actually start doing some low end activities but just change the way they do it. Whether, like I said, it's an elevation of the right arm to drive some right rotation of the thoracic spine or rib cage, sorry, or I give somebody heel lifts for squats and you know, it opens up their, uh, the area above their pelvis and the posterior side, allows them to get you know, a little bit deeper and get them past that one or that 90 degree mark so they can actually get into a deeper squat. Um, trying to think of all the other things I've been doing as of late like long seated versus short seated. So if somebody has, like myself, I'm, um, my tailbone is kind of counter or my sacrum, sorry, is counter -nutated. And so I'm technically a better at squatting than I am at hinging. And it's true. I mean, I've been deadlifting for so many years and- I can confirm he can deadlift. <laughs> Once upon a time. <laughs> but um, so, you know, basically the, the distinction of a good deadlift workout was if I woke up the next morning and I could walk, you know, and like, that's not, you know, I'm a trainer. That's not the way it should be. <laughs> so what I've kind of learned now is I deadlift with my, my left toe elevated and that allows me to get some mutation on my sacrum on that left side. And I feel pretty good um, opening up my left hip and now it allows me to not so much access more range of motion, it's just better range of motion. Mm -hmm. And so for squatting, same thing, I can maybe put somebody, like I said, heels elevated, Let's say um, there's somebody who is like compressed quite a bit. Maybe they need to you know, activate their glutes a little bit more. We can throw a band around their knees. That's nothing new to you, nothing new to you know, most trainers. Or somebody like myself who has trouble, like I said, with that kind of nutation of the, of the sacrum and doesn't, doesn't like compress very well. I can put a ball between my knees and activate my adductors and that will allow me to get a little bit lower because now I can access that IR that, um, if you're familiar with the limb arc, uh, limb arc model, it's kind of that 60 to 90 degree range in any lift, really. It could be your deadlift, it could be a toe touch, it could be a squat, it could be a shoulder flexion test. So a lot of people kind of, if they're compressed or if they're like myself, who is uh, more kind of a wide or a expanded type person who doesn't compress very well in that 60 to 90 degree range of a squat, a deadlift, I struggle. And so I have to really spend more time there or set up in a uh, better position to allow me to get into uh, a proper lifting position. Ultimately, our goal is to have the person perform better. And this is something that I talk about all the time is a lot of the, the people out there, the trainers and, and health professionals are under the impression that their workout is, is the event, right? When really the workout is kind of this obstacle that's in the way of the athlete performing better at their sport. And so we want to do whatever we can to get the person to move better. And obviously the more tools that the professional has, like Nate has a ton of tools, the more tools, the more likely the athlete is going to get to where they want to go. And for, for a lot of golfers, obviously performance, they want to play well, but longevity is a huge part of that durability. Nathan, how can the quality of training help 
aging golfers or help golfers perform better for longer? Nathan, I haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, longevity is one of those things that every golfer is coming to me, right? Like they want, they want distance, they want to be out of pain, and they want to play this game forever. So, I mean, golf is, is luckily one of those sports that we can play for a very long time. And everything we kind of just covered, I mean, you know, your pyramid or your step kind of analogy, my pyramid analogy, it's, that's basically where we are, we're taking people um, and kind of taking them through the steps. And they may not hit every step, but at the same time, we're making sure that the base, and that's the foundation. If you have that, you can play this game forever. You may not hit the ball like Bryson, but you know, you're going to be able to play, you will play consecutive days, not have pain. Uh, you're not going to be able to have to you know, rely on Advil or going to your chiropractor or, you know, manual therapist to, to get treatment. And that's kind of the key here with that. And one of the things, or a couple of, some of the things we didn't talk about that are kind of big in my model is the X factors. And that's kind of nutrition, um, you know, sleep and recovery. Whether you're a high performing junior or amateur or pro, or you're just, you know, like I said, my dad or everyday Joe, the nutrition and sleep and recovery can go a long way as well into making sure that you have good training sessions and have obviously good rounds of golf. Yeah, absolutely. The, the sleep, and this is something we had uh, Dr. Ian Dunican on recently and talk, talking about like how much an uh, impact sleep has on our performance. 10%, we can get a 10% boost in performance just from getting good sleep. For me, with the longevity, with the durability, I'm thinking about can my golfer, say a competitive golfer, can they make it through the entire competitive season without becoming injured? Like say it's yeah. somebody on the McKenzie tour or the corn Ferry tour, and they're not making a ton of money. Right. And so if they miss a couple of weeks, that's, that's devastating to their income. And so a big part of that, and this is something I think that a lot of people don't realize with the elite athletes, with the professional athletes, most of their training is actually dedicated to keeping them on the links or keeping them on the court or on the field or on the ice, whatever sport they play, right? There's obviously a performance stuff that goes into it. But when we talk about that risk reward, if yeah. your livelihood depends on you performing, then you're going to have to perform all the time. And most of your efforts are going to be dedicated to reducing your risk for injury, um, making sure that um, you're optimizing your rehab and all of that. And so with that in mind, we want to build a durable body. And that comes back, just like you said, about everything we talked about. For me, what I'm looking at is the quality of the person's movement. When we thought about, or when we talked about the overhead squat assessment, and I'm trying to minimize those deviations in movement from what we consider ideal, trying to reduce the wear and tear on the joints and connective tissues in the body, because that wear and tear will ultimately cause inflammation, increase the risk for pain and injury, and ultimately make the golfer less durable. Strength training is also extremely important. Having that strength reserve so that you have more capacity to play or practice. And the scientific research is pretty clear when it comes to, you know, strength and, and cross-sectional area of muscle. The more you have, you know, obviously yeah. to a certain point, the more you have, the longer you live. Yeah. Longer you live, the more, obviously, from uh, the model type approach you can access, you have potential for more power and speed, but you're just going to reduce your risk of injury being stronger. You really can't be strong enough, um, at least I feel. I mean, that, that's obviously coming from a strength coach, but at the same time, I think a lot of people don't, under, they underestimate basically the power of how strong or how strength can 
help their game on many different levels. People quite often think, okay, want to be as strong as possible so that I can, you know, be as powerful as possible. That's not really necessarily how it works. You want to be as strong as possible. So you don't have to put as much effort into yeah. your swing. Right? <laughs> you can swing at 70%, but it's like how other people have to go at 90%. Well, that's advantageous to your body, but also to your accuracy, right? Yeah. If you can dial back and still be just as powerful than most other people, then that's going to be a good thing. We call it kind of like your uh, your cruising speed. Like you have that max speed that you have to really get after it, but because you have you've kind of raised the bar, you've you've got a bigger engine now. You can kind of you know kick back to eighty percent, which used to be your hundred percent type thing. Uh, but now you're more accurate and obviously uh, swinging comfortably. But so I want to take advantage of having you here, Nate. You are a nutritionist. I love your content surrounding nutrition. It it makes sense. It's really just common sense stuff and people seem to overcomplicate it. So maybe go into the nutrition side of things just for everyday life, say controlling body weight. And of course, you know, for golf. I mean, you kind of just like hit the nail on the head there in terms of um, people just make it too complicated. Nutrition is really not that tough. If you're not suffering from any kind of like ailment or disease type thing, which is outside my scope of practice, that's where you know, a dietitian would come in uh, or you want to see something like that. But in terms of, you know, managing body composition, absolutely. That's within my realm. Um, you know, chatting about that really quickly. I mean, calories matter. That's kind of your, your starting point. A lot of people argue, well, hormones matter. Yes, they do. But if your caloric intake is out of whack, that's probably why your hormones are out of whack. So if you can kind of get your caloric intake in check first and then um, allow your hormones to kind of get back in place, that'd be great. This is also where sleep comes into play. If you're, um, you know, if you're not sleeping, and let's say you're eating well, but you're not sleeping and you're still training, well, you're probably still not gonna get the benefit that you could if you did take care of your sleep a little bit more um, or paid a little more attention to it. But in terms of like, you know, body composition management, it's caloric intake first, that's gonna help your hormonal you know, profile, making sure you're getting good sleep, you know, vegetables, lean protein, things like that, that's obviously gonna be good. I don't subscribe to high carb or high fat or low fat, any of that kind of you know, tribalism BS. If somebody comes to me and I do have a lot of clients who are still vegan or, you know, paleo or something like that, I can care less. As long as your blood profile, you know, suggests that you're healthy, I can care less what, you know, way you or what style of uh, nutrition you want to follow. But if you're coming to me and you need help, you know, let's say it's a vegan, for instance, and uh, I gotta be, gotta be careful my choice of words here. I'll probably get crucified a little bit, but you know, if somebody comes to me for moral issues, that's great. We're, we're sticking to that person and I'm gonna do everything I can to work around that and make sure that they're getting all the nutrients they need. And we may have to supplement. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. And I was vegan for five years. So I'm not coming from this from a, um, you know, kind of outside in, I, I was in the trenches. It didn't work for me, but there was also a number of other things going on in my life at the time that really, didn't allow it to work or I didn't have the knowledge or skill set at that point in time. And I didn't get help because I'm too stubborn for that. So, <laughs> so I mean, I can only go so far, but knowing what I know now, and I have a number of vegetarian and vegan um, clients who are thriving, it's just basically figuring out what they need and, you know, getting blood work. And if there's anything, if there's a nutrient there, we can get from food that falls in their, their menu. Great. We'll get after it. Um, in terms of like paleo or, you know, caveman diet was kind of where I had, I, I crossed the line or I basically had, I drew the line in the sand. I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of looking at social and reading all the different, you know, nutritionists I used to follow and things like that. Once I heard that and kind of like their, you know, vegetables were no longer kind of the, the one thing that was, no matter what diet you follow, vegetables were always the, the staple. And then, you know, it was kind of the common ground. 
And once that went out the window, I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> so in terms of nutrition, there's a lot of tribalism going on there, but um, I don't even know where I was going with that. Well, in terms of healthy body fat or body composition. So making sure you're getting lean protein and getting enough protein, that's going to be a, a kind of the number two, once calories are in check, if somebody wants to lose body fat, that's kind of where I'm at there with that. And then actually if, with coaching clients, once I get their calories in check and their protein in check, I'm, I don't even care what fats and carbohydrates and, you know, what they're consuming. I, I'm more focused about hydration and sleep and other things to kind of reinforce those good habits. And after a while, yeah, sure. We can talk about like, you know, um, calorie cycling or cycling or carb cycling based on the person's goals and things like that. From a, a golf perspective, this is where it gets a little bit interesting. I mean, you know, let's back up for a second. Let's say if somebody comes to the course and they have good snacks, that's great. But that's not when nutrition starts, right? Like, you know, nutrition doesn't, if you're playing on the weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you don't start thinking about your nutrition on Wednesday. This is something we're doing all the time. So, I mean, making sure that you're having those, you know, those healthy foods and, and snacks and you're staying hydrated, super important as you arrive to the course. But in terms of like, you know, being on the course, I, everybody's a little bit different. Some people like to snack every three holes, every four holes, five holes, just as long as it's on your mind, you're consistently getting some food in just to manage that, you know, the blood sugar levels. If you're waiting for the hot dog at the turn or the bag of chips from the cart, uh, you know, person coming around, that's obviously not going to be the uh, recipe for success in terms of amateur golf or, you know, you and I going out there and playing. And so making sure your blood sugars are obviously going to be level. Uh, and you can do that a variety of different ways. You don't have to be keto or paleo or vegan to do that. It's just making sure you're having balanced meals and snacks. Um, and hydration is a big one as well. Most people don't drink enough water when they're playing. And I, I can't remember the stats. I should have probably pulled them before I, I popped on here. But there's a number of like, if you're walking, um, I don't remember, I'll, I'll butcher the stat now. But anyway, Basically, if you're walking, you're losing a ton of, of, of body water, therefore you're losing body weight. That's going to affect your cognitive function. Now your decision making's off. You know, if your uh, blood sugar is out of whack, that's obviously going to affect how, how cool and calm you can stay while you're, you know, standing over a five, you know, five foot putt type thing for par or for birdie. Um, you know, if, if something means something, if, if the game is on the line, you have your driver in hand and you and I, we've talked about it. Our driver isn't our strongest club, <laughs> seven iron, you know, all the way through. But, you know, for us, if, if I'm starting to grip that club a little bit harder now, that's not a you know, recipe for success either. So making sure that, you know, we're taking care of the factors that are completely in our control. Golf is hard enough as it is. We don't need to start adding more things to it, you know, to make it more difficult. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. Just make sure you're snacking every couple of holes. You're drinking water every hole. Um, I like to put a little bit of sea salt, uh, like Himalayan sea salt or Celtic sea salt into the waters to get some electrolytes in there. I'm not big on Gatorade and whatnot, but I mean, it's kind of, uh, a lot of my juniors will drink it because obviously it's, it's easier to get them on board with that. But as they get older, I try to kind of shy them away or push them off the Gatorade route and go a little bit more um, water with some salt. Not your uh, Windsor table salt, by the way, but good <laughs> Celtic sea salt. <laughs> All right, Nate. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I know the uh, the audience really appreciates you. Uh, we'll do this again real soon. Absolutely. Where can people find you and uh, what kind of services do you provide? Uh, for the most part, my website is kind of the home base. So NathanJackson.com. Um, my mom had to be a little bit different and put an E at the end of my, of my name. So it's N-A-T-H-A-N-E and then Jackson.com. Uh, for the most part, Instagram is kind of where I, my home base. Um, 
Um, I basically just share stuff on Facebook that is on Instagram. So you don't need to follow me on both if, uh, if that's the case. Twitter, I have no idea how to use Twitter. I try, I, I don't get it. People don't get me. So I, I have a, an account, but I don't really check it. <laughs> but um, outside of that, I mean, I have coaching programs. That's kind of where my bread and butter is. Obviously since COVID hit, my, my business went entirely online. Luckily I've been online for about a decade. So it was nothing new for me. It just, I had to double down on it. Um, and you work a lot with uh, junior golfers as well, right? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say a lot. They probably make up uh, 25% of my, my, my population. Um, I'm probably like 25% junior and like 50% senior. And then somewhere in between there is kind of those who are either college athletes or amateur type thing. Um, but yeah, coaching programs is kind of where I'm at. It's, it's kind of where I've, I've, I'm most comfortable in terms of uh, delivering a, a program type thing where it's back and forth. I get to see what you're doing. I use an app that um, can hit uh, videos on it and things like that. I do have some like, um, you know, products and whatnot for mobility and things like that. I like them. They're, they're good. I wouldn't have them released if I didn't like them. But at the same time, I prefer to work with people kind of more in person just to get, you know, better results. But that's just me because uh, I've been through your program, by the way, your program is like that was mint. It was just, uh, it was perfect in terms of like the length of, of sessions. Um, kind of like how you divvied up your your model in terms of you know what steps to go through is very you know laid out very well the thing about nathan is he has the skills to help you with everything you get the nutrition advice is kind of like your your one-stop center you can get everything you need check him out on instagram check out his website i'll put a link in the uh the the notes below nathan thanks for coming on and we'll have you on again real soon thanks tommy appreciate it